Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and this is episode three. Today's episode is entitled Bee Drama, How I Lost One Queen and Gained Two More. Before I get into today's subject matter about all the drama that my hives have managed to get up to, um, I wanted to give a, a little bit of an update on what's been going on at the homestead recently. So last week I actually lost one of my chickens, Big Red. Um, I came out on Monday um, to do my usual chickeny chores and I opened up the big coop and Big Red was sort of hunched over um, her comb and her wattles were very very pale instead of being the dark red that they usually are and I knew just looking at her that it was it was bad so I brought her inside I set her up in our um, downstairs bathroom where she would be safe from the dogs where it's warm and I started syringe feeding her a um, a nutrient solution it's it's a mix of vitamins particularly calcium with d3 and um, electrolytes I had to you know put it in her beak drop by drop she was very very weak and I really didn't expect that she was going to make it but by the time I got to mid-afternoon and she was still with us I decided that you know maybe things were gonna turn around well, sadly, not long after I thought that, um, she suffered a seizure and then she passed away. I immediately performed a necropsy. Um, once again, my chicken health handbook that I'd mentioned in the first episode came in handy there. It kind of gave me a refresher course about, you know, where I needed to cut or what I needed to do. Um, I did realize that I, um, I really need to get my own dissection kit, which is not something I would expect to say. Thankfully, one of my best friends is a forensic anthropologist, so she was more than happy to send me links to a number of good, inexpensive dissection kits that I can keep here at the house. Anyway, I opened up Big Red, and I had noticed that she was very, very light when I picked her up, and sure enough, she was underweight. She'd obviously been starving, but her crop was full. Um, so I opened up her crop, and it was, I mean, it was ginormous. I mean, one look at the organ, and I knew that it that was going to be the source of the problem. And for people who don't know, the crop is part of a chicken's digestive system, so it's a sack kind of on the front of a chicken, um, sort of just tucked under their breast if you pick them up. And um, it basically food goes there first and gets ground up. So chickens, when they free range, will eat, you know, small bits of pebbles, rocks, you know, hard matter. And if you keep them, as, as I do, in, in a run that, you know, they only get that space, they can't free range, you need to offer... Um, chicken gravel to them and it's just you know ground up bits of stones that are safe to feed and it that goes in their crop and when they eat the food goes there first and it gets all ground up by those pieces of gravel and once it's kind of almost you know being pre-digested in the sense of being ground down so fine it then moves to the digestive system so the crop is an integral organ in a chicken and um, I could see by the size of it that 
it was going to be an issue of impaction. So I removed the crop, I took it out, I opened it up, and I was surprised by the contents because usually if a crop is going to become impacted, it's due to either the chicken ingesting a foreign object or inject uh, ingesting very long or very fibrous material that kind of gets all bunched up and causes the impaction. But there was no sign of that in there. She had what I would expect to see in a crop. It was all very fine, but it was beginning to degrade, which is a bad sign. Um, so I cleaned it out. I looked at the actual walls of the crop, and although there were no tumors, or ulcers or any obvious signs of disease, the walls of the crop had thickened quite substantially. And so I kind of wonder if maybe there was some kind of underlying infection that caused the thickening that eventually led to it becoming impacted. So I believe based on what I found that something led to the impaction, possibly this um, infection, that then stopped up the crop to the point where food couldn't pass through to the rest of her digestive system and she had starved and or succumbed to um, maybe a secondary infection because, like I said, the content of the crop was beginning to degrade and could have caused something like sepsis. Um, and, you know, the, the thing that struck me is there had been no signs of any issues with big red until I found her basically close to death. And this is common in chickens. I think I've mentioned it before. They're very good at hiding illness from their people and from other chickens because a weak chicken will get picked on very readily by her flock. And this is true with reptiles as well. So I'm, I'm, I am used to finding this sort of thing where everything seems to be fine and then suddenly I have a super sick animal on my hands and then it's dead. And you know, it's hard to get used to. It, it's always difficult. And I always feel guilty as if I should have known. And I did think about how if I handled all of my chickens daily, I would have known that she had had this sudden weight loss. But the problem with that is my chickens don't like to be handled. And I'm kind of in that weird in-between place with my chickens. They are pets in the sense that when they stop laying eggs, I'm not going to eat them, which is what a lot of people do. And that's fine. If that's how you want to raise your chickens, I'm totally on board with that. Um, you know, I'm always sort of like an animal that's lived a long life and being useful to you. A kind death is, is a fair way to go. But for me, you know, I want to keep my chickens, even when they've stopped laying eggs, I'm going to keep them because they're on that pet level. But I'm also relatively pragmatic in that these aren't cuddle pets. You know, they're not my dogs. I'm not snuggling them every day. Only Agatha gets handled daily because she needs to be syringe fed her medication. But it did make me think that, um, you know, even though my younger flock doesn't like to be touched or picked up because they had sort of a more wild existence before I got them. I am going to try and pick up each hen once a week or so just to kind of give them what I like to call a heft, you know, just lift them up quickly, see how they feel. Because when you pick up a chicken, you really get that feel for is this chicken like heavy enough? Is she not? Because a light bird is just so obvious compared to like hefting a, a good solid hen. So I think, you know, moving forward, that's what I'm going to, to try and do. Um, in less depressing news, um, 
I was asked to help a local beekeeper with a hive issue. So the issue that she had was that she went in to do an inspection and when she tried to lift one of the frames, she found that it was connected to the frame beneath it in the other box. And it sounded like um, it was connected by what we call burr comb. And burr comb is basically any comb that's that's been placed by the bees in an area that we don't want. So if it's on the edges of a frame, if it's connecting two frames together, if it's sticking the lid to the rest of the frame, we're going to call that burr comb. And she couldn't, this keeper couldn't by herself hold that top box up and then be able to get a good look underneath to see where the frames were connecting and then hopefully separate them. She needed someone else there. She needed an extra pair of hands. So she'd reached out to our mutual teacher, Emily, and asked if Emily could come out and help, which is something that Emily does do. Um, and Emily just didn't have any time coming up. You know, she's a very busy lady. So Emily said, you know, reach out to Gemma because I live right nearby. And so I was really chuffed, honestly. Like, um, it was quite flattering to be told that I could help because, yes, it's just heavy lifting heavy lifting and honestly any extra pair of hands would have done the trick but it's still really nice to have a teacher be like yes Gemma can help you go go contact her so um I did you know I said absolutely I'll come and help you so on the weekend you know I went round and um it was an interesting experience um so the the beekeeper who I will call um Dee Dee is um, a second year keeper and she has uh, three hives I think right now and the one that we we're working on is her famously aggressive hive and I remember hearing about it because Dee had also been to some of the same beekeeping classes as me so I had heard her talking about these bees before and this is the hive that we had to work on and I know I've mentioned particularly in the last episode that I'm not comfortable with aggressive bees and I still have that sort of flailing you know inner three-year-old who just wants to run away screaming and she was not kidding about how aggressive these bees are the minute you get close to that hive they are on you and they mean business and even worse um we we would take time to like step away to try and help the hive calm down and we'd have to move a good 20 feet or more away because the guard bees would chase us like they were determined um, and this hive is really large in populous so there's a lot of bees they have a lot of foragers they have a lot of guard bees there's a lot to basically dob you in and say hey someone's here go get them um so in some ways it wasn't fun um they were all over us and um i think i've mentioned before that i wear these cuffs that basically help keep my gloves in place and the arm of my suit or my jacket in place so that the bees can't like sneak under and find skin because a determined bee will always find skin and I was wearing um, my usual uh, nitrile surgical gloves which I knew that I could be stung through and sure enough early on into our work um, one of the girls got me on my hand and um, what was interesting it was it was right on my hand right near the joint and Aside from the fact that it always still kind of shocks me how much it hurts, that initial sting, it was really odd because 
usually when I'm stung by a bee, I don't really have much of a reaction. Um, I, I've mentioned before I've been stung on my face and, you know, anything on your face is tend to the worst places to be stung, like sort of face, eyes, lips, nose, all those kind of places tend to react very strongly if you do react. And um, the one on my face, you know, it, it hurt. It hurt for a little bit. There was a little mark. It didn't really swell up and it was totally gone within a couple of hours. No itching, nothing. This one on my wrist seemed to trigger my carpal tunnel symptoms. So within about 10 minutes, I had a familiar aching nerve pain in that hand and wrist. And later on when I got home, it the whole area was starting to swell. And I noticed that I'd actually been stung a couple of more times. Um, they must have got under the cuff and I hadn't noticed until I you know, got home. I saw the pinpricks from where the stingers had gone in and that hole about maybe eight to 10 inches of my forearm noticeably swelled up. And that pain, that carpal tunnel pain continued for a good 12 hours and the swelling lasted about 24 hours. And But what was so bizarre is the actual spots where the stinger had gone in, those cleared up really fast and there wasn't swelling around that wound like you would usually see you know think about a mosquito bite that kind of you know direct swelling it wasn't like that it was this whole area so that was a really interesting response I'm I'm very intrigued by what happened there uh it could it have just been a little bit of swelling that constricted the nerve which is what causes my carpal tunnel and that's what led to this response was it that it was so many stings in a relatively small area which I've never experienced before I don't know but um it was interesting as for the rest of that hive check it went fine um she d the other beekeeper she actually held that top box up for me and I could see where the frames connected and I just sliced through them with a knife and uh, we got so we got everything sorted and then afterwards it was really nice to chat about her experiences you know she was telling me about her hives how things had gone her first year and then I asked her about you know what she did to overwinter because that's something that I'm already thinking about and I really need to start looking into and she was kind enough to tell me sort of what she had done and then also show me some of the equipment that she used to overwinter so that was a really good experience for me and I'm, I'm really happy that I got a chance to help and and then I also learned something new so that was great well on to today's episode um which as I said I entitled bee drama um when I started beekeeping I had my personal Instagram account where I was chronicling my journey. So I would take pictures when I remembered when I was out with my hives and I would share them on my Instagram. Well, it wasn't long after getting my bees that I found myself using the hashtag bee drama to describe how things were going. And you're welcome to check out my personal Instagram page if you would like. Um, it's at Britty Kitty, which is B-R-I-T-I-K-I-T-T-Y. Um, but it's mainly just sort of general life things and puppy pictures. So if you want to see, you know, pictures of my beautiful dogs, then yes, go go ahead and join. That's You're perfectly welcome to do so. So when looking into beekeeping, 
you'll find a lot of great resources from books to blogs to clubs, which will provide information on how things are supposed to go or how things usually go. Info such as how your hive will progress through spring, summer and fall, what to feed and when, how to prepare for winter, you know, all that sort of information about what you should be looking for and what you should be doing. And then you get bees and they just do whatever they want. Um, so what happened to me is that I installed my two nucleus colonies on May 19th. As is the usual with a nuke, I had a laying queen in each colony with a good mix of workers to brood to eggs. But one of the colonies, Queen Marcus, was the one that was literally bursting at the seams and had been leaking and led to me being stung on the face. Well, after I installed them, everything seemed to be progressing as it should be with both colonies. And I did see that my Queen Bridget's hive was a little slower to build up, but because she had a smaller colony, a smaller population, I just assumed this was normal. And every time I went in there to look, I would see eggs, brood, and my queen. So I thought, you know, things are going well. Well, on July 1st, I went out to do an inspection and I went into Bridget's hive and I couldn't find her and I couldn't find eggs. And it's the last part there that's crucial. Yes, it's great to see your queen every time you do an inspection, if you can. But as long as you see eggs and a good mix of broods and the different ages and the different levels of them pupating, your queen is there. If there are eggs, there's a queen. So you know that things are going as they should be. But if you go in and you can't find a queen, and you can't find any eggs, that is a time to be concerned. So I start pulling more frames and I found very young larva that I estimated to be about three days old. This means that about six days previously, I had had a queen because an egg takes about three days to hatch. So that should be about a six day period. I also found one capped supersedure cell, which placed it at about seven to eight days old, and one supersedure, which was about to be capped. So I'm sure you're wondering, what's a supersedure cell? Well, these occur when the hive either decides to replace the existing queen, or something happens to their queen, and they have to quickly replace her. So almost like an emergency situation. In the first instance, a hive might kill their queen if they sense something is wrong. So maybe she has some kind of disease, or she has very poor genetics, or she's not laying appropriately. Uh, maybe she's just very old and she's running out of sperm. Well, the bees know this, and they will take matters into their own hands. They'll kill that queen, and they'll choose to raise one of their own. Now, as you might recall from my introduction to beekeeping episode, 
Queens are raised from any fertilized egg that is fed royal jelly and given a larger cell in which to grow. A supersedia cell is a queen cell positioned mid-frame and it looks like an in-shell peanut or monkey nut that someone's just boop, prepped, pressed it right there on the frame. This is different from a swarm cell, which is also a queen cell, but is tends to be found on the very bottom of a frame, hanging downwards. Um, I'm going to put pictures on the blog and on Instagram of these, although if you check out at the Hive Jive on Instagram, John just shared a really great video clip with some awesome pictures of queen cells and supersedia cells, so I definitely recommend taking a look at that if you can. So back to my hives. I diagnosed this problem and my mind started racing and I started to second guess myself, which is something I tend to do and it can often be problematic. I started thinking, well, what if these weren't supersedures? What if they were funky swarm cells? Because I had heard that not all swarm cells will be on the bottom of a frame. So was it possible that this hive was considering swarming? I mean, the colony was very small and it seemed too small to think about swarming as that usually happens, you know, when the colony is built up to a point where it's run out of space. So I went to some Facebook beekeeping groups, posted about my situation, and most of what I received was, you know, agreement with my first diagnosis that my queen was dead and the hive was making a new one. So I had two options. I could let the hive raise their own queen, or I could buy a mated queen and put her in. Now, I wanted to let them raise their own, but there are risks with that. Firstly, they weren't making very many supersedure cells, which was strange. Everything that I've read and things that I've been told about when a hive wants to replace a queen is that they'll make a lot of cells. Um, you know, it's not uncommon to find 10, 12, 15, you know, sometimes as much as 20 something. And I had two. So that made me concerned, you know, was if this queen was failing in some way and these eggs were from her, was this the best they could do? And would that mean that any queen they raised from these eggs would also be unhealthy? My second concern was that even if they successfully raised a queen, the mating flights that a queen takes are very risky. Uh, that virgin queen, when she's flying out and about in the big wide world, she could get eaten by a bird, she could get sprayed with a pesticide, she could get squished. I mean, the possibilities are endless in terms of her potential demise. I also wondered would she mate well? Are there enough drones in my area for her to breed with? And this last point didn't worry me too much because two doors down from where I live, my neighbor has over 20 hives and his bees are a mixture of bees that he's purchased, queens that he's reared himself, queens that he's bought from others, or colonies that he caught in swarm traps from as far as like three hours away. So that points to a very healthy genetic diversity. And finally, my big concern was I just had these two brand new colonies. Did I want to risk letting this hive raise their own queen? 
Well, as it turns out, I didn't need to. One of my teachers had seen my Facebook post and that day she happened to have a spare queen. She had been out inspecting some colonies on an outyard, which is basically any place away from your personal property where you keep hives. And she saw that one was getting ready to swarm. She didn't have the time to go in and do a proper split where you separate one hive into two. So what she did was she just pulled out the queen. And this would put an end to the swarming because they would realize the queen was gone and would raise new queens for that hive before they would consider leaving. But then she's stuck with this queen and she doesn't know where to put her because she didn't have a queenless hive that she could pop this queen in. So because she happened to see my post the same day, she sent me a message and said, do you want my queen? And I was very grateful and said, yes, please. Now, by the time she could make it out to me, it was getting dark. And this is not the time that you want to open up a hive. Bees do not want to be disturbed in the evening and at nighttime, and they are very aggressive when you do so. So my teacher, Emily, she wanted to actually confirm my diagnosis to make sure that there wasn't a queen secretly hiding in there that would kill this new queen we were trying to put in. So I used the flashlight on my phone to give her light and she went frame by frame checking for eggs and she didn't find any, which was good because it meant that my diagnosis was correct. But this whole time she's getting stung by some very unhappy bees and I felt terrible because I was being such a baby and really sort of trying to distance myself. Like I had my phone held as far away from my body as possible because <laughs> I just, I didn't want to be stung. Well, she um, had the queen in a queen cage and told me to put her in under the inner cover and then let her out in two days. She also pointed out to me that the colony had started backfilling frames. And this basically means that as brood was emerging as little baby bees, they were filling the empty brood cells with pollen and honey stores, which was leaving limited space for the queen to lay. And this is not what you want. And it was also a little infuriating because they still had frames that they hadn't drawn wax on. But bees are efficient. So from their point of view, they're like, well, why should we use up all our calories and all our, you know, all our energy building wax on these frames when here we have built out frames and okay, they had brood in it, but now we can just use them for stores. And this gave me pause because firstly, it made me think I should probably be feeding these hives. Like they obviously need a little bit more support to draw more wax. And it also made me realize that during my inspections, I had been so intent on looking for eggs and brood and the queen that I was probably not seeing the big picture. You know, basically I, I couldn't see the forest for the trees. You know, when I really racked my brain, I could say that yes, I had a good idea of general laying pattern from each of my queens, but I wasn't clearly tracking the stores versus the brood space or, you know, whether they were backfilling. How, how was their buildup compared to what they were bringing in? So with this now in mind, I went back to the hives the next day. 
the first thing I did was I checked on my new queen in her cage and she was surrounded by workers who were already offering to feed her, which is a really, really good sign. And to make the rest of this episode a little easier, I'm going to be referring to this hive with the new queen as hive number one. So on this day, I also added another super or hive body to give the bees more space to work with and to hopefully stave off backfilling. I then went into my other hive, which is the hive with queen marker, which I'm gonna call hive number two. And I pulled out each frame and I really, really looked at them. I made a note of ex brood and queen as usual, but I also carefully examined the space they had, what they were using and whether they were backfilling. And they were. So looking at their stores, they had a very good supply of honey being built up and pollen, which also came with all the brood that they had. So I decided I was going to split the hive. Now, when we talk about doing a split, we are literally splitting one hive into two. And this is basically an artificial swarm situation. So it's something that can happen in the spring and it's basically that instead of allowing half of your bees to fly off with the old queen in a natural swarming behavior you do your own version of a swarm and you get to keep all your bees so that's always a good thing right you don't want your bees to leave you don't want your bees to swarm yes it's a natural behavior but then you've just lost those bees if possible you want to keep all your bees and end up with two colonies So here's what I did to perform a split. I carefully located my queen, queen marker, and I set the frame she was on aside. Then I looked at the frames of eggs, brood, pollen and honey, and I split them roughly 50-50. Half of them went into a deep super with queen marker, and I took that and moved it to a new location. And that's important. You always want to move the queen to the new location because remember, it's the old queen who leaves with the swarm. So this is mimicking that natural behavior. I then gave them an extra hive body so they'd have a little bit more room. I then took the remaining half of the colony and I put those frames into a deep super with some new frames to make up the difference and I put another super on top of them. This became hive number three. Now this hive is because it is left behind and it's in the original location, any bees who are out foraging will come back to this hive. They will not sniff out queen marker and go to her new location. They will come back to the original location of the hive. So um, this hive, even though it didn't have a queen at this point, ended up with the biggest colony. It ended up with the biggest amount of bees for the time being. So after I did this split, I went back into hive number one, the one with the new queen, and I took out the frames that had the supersedure cells on them. I brushed off as many bees as I could, and I put this frame in with my queenless colony, hive number three. Why did I do this? Well, I'm a bit soft-hearted, 
And I really didn't want to break down those cells if I could avoid it. Because although the possibility existed that genes of hive number one weren't that great, I felt that the cells were far, far enough along that they deserved a chance. I also knew that the bees in hive number three, if they sensed anything wrong with those developing queens in the cells, they would open up the cells, pull the queens out, kill them, and then build their own supersedure cells from eggs that I had left behind for them. So my plan was, I'm going to let hive number three attempt to raise their own queen. If they failed to do so, I would go out and I would buy a mated queen. So after all of this hard work, I now have three hives. I have hive number one with the queen from my teacher, Emily, who I named Karedwin, the Celtic goddess of rebirth and the dark move, moon. <laughs> I had hive number two with Marka and hive number three who had no queen but the ability to raise their own. Two days after the evening arrival of Queen Karedwin, I went out to release her from her queen cage and I did check again the activity of the bees around the cage to make sure that they were in full acceptance of her. And you might be wondering, well, how can you tell? How, how do you know if the bees have accepted a queen? Well, when a hive hasn't accepted a queen, they'll gather around the cage, but with the intent to kill her. And if you look closely, you can tell the difference between bees that are trying to kill and bees that are trying to like feed or groom. And from a distance, it might look the same. It's just a big cluster of bees around the cage. But when they're attempting to sting her, they're basically approaching her you know, butt first. They have their stinger pointed down, their body is hunched as they're trying to sting through the mesh. Another posture to look out for is that they might be biting the cage, trying to chew through the material so they can get in there and attack the queen directly. And this is quite distinctive as well. The body posture now is the head is pressed down very hard and the back is arched up with the effort of biting down. You can feel this as well when you run your finger gently along the queen cage. If the bees are easily brushed aside by the movement of your finger, then they're not being aggressive. But if you feel resistance, those girls are chomping down hard and they want to get in and kill that queen. So I could see that based on the body posturing and the way the workers were behaving, they wanted to get to the queen, not to hurt her, but to care for her because they accepted her as the new matriarch of their colony. So I opened up the queen cage and I watched Queen Karedwin disappear down the frames into my hive, which was total success. That hive requeened. Awesome. So I made a note that I would need to come back in a few days, make sure everything was going well and that she was actually laying again. And I took that moment to relish in my success. I had gone from a queenless hive to a queen right hive. Queen Bridget was dead, long leave Queen Karedwin. I was particularly excited about this queen actually because Emily had mentioned to me that she was a fifth generation Ohio queen, meaning that she came from a line that was overwintering really well. And she'd also said that this queen's bees 
had built up wax and stores like crazy. You know, Emily was actually having a hard time keeping up with their build up. So I was really excited to see the change in behavior of the colony as the new genes came to fruition as this queen started laying and producing new generations of bees. So to remind everyone of the timeline, July 1st, I discovered that Queen Bridget was gone and there were no eggs. I requeened that same day in the evening and then I released Caredwin on the 3rd. So I went back in on the 8th and guess what? More hashtag bee drama. To set the scene, when I go in and do an inspection, I was taught to always start with the bottom box. So if you can imagine it's a Langstroth hive and let's say it has three boxes on it, take the middle box and I set that aside. I then go into the bottom box frame by frame looking for, you know, a sign of a healthy colony. When I finish that, I would move to the middle box. When that one has been inspected, I go to the top box. So you go bottom to top or butt to head. So I've set aside my top two boxes and I look in the bottom box and the first thing that I notice is that bees are cranky. They are cranky and they are not afraid to let me know it, which is concerning because crankiness can be a sign of queenlessness. So I start pulling the frames and I find more supersedure cells. And my first thought is, oh no, did they just go in and kill Caridwin? I'm trying not to panic because I'm already thinking of the message I'm going to have to send my teacher, you know, oh, hey, my bees killed her. Sorry about that. I start inspecting the next box and the middle box was actually the new super I had given them for more space. And there was no signs that they were building the comb and very few bees in this box at all, which was weird. So then I go into the top box and it's packed full of extremely happy bees and there's my queen and there are eggs, which is awesome. So I take a big breath and I'm like, okay, my queen is alive. That's great. And she's laying eggs. That is double great. But what exactly is going on here? And what I realized is that I had been an idiot by placing that empty box between two boxes that had built up frames. Now, I don't know why I did this. I think in my head, I thought that having built up frames on top and built up frames on the bottom would encourage the bees to move through the middle and would therefore encourage them to build wax. And I have no idea what I based this on. I, I Just a moment of fancy, I don't know. But instead what had happened is the bees in the bottom box were too far away from the queen in the top box to smell her and her pheromones and they still thought they were queenless whereas the bees in the top box with the queen were just happy as little clams because there's their queen and she's making them babies and that's all they want in life bees want babies so what I needed to do clearly was remove that middle box well the problem was that I basically had two colonies existing in one hive. And my concern was that if I just merged them together, like just took out that middle box and popped them together, that the bees on the bottom might kill the queen because that wasn't their queen. They hadn't had time to accept her. And I don't want to put her back in her cage because I have no queen handling experience. She's already laying. I want her to keep laying. I don't want to risk, you know, smushing her. So what I did was I used a merging method where you take a couple of pieces of newspaper and you lay it over the top 
of the lower box and then you put the top box down on it. And the idea is that the bees will instantly try and get rid of that paper because they can sense that it's not supposed to be in the hive, they don't want it there. And as they're removing the paper by chewing through it, they're smelling each other. And this would give time for them accept each other, like each of the two hives would come to see themselves as one hive and they could also accept the queen's pheromones. So I got this all set up and then I left them to it. I came back to this hive on the 12th and the merge had been a complete success. The queen was accepted, she'd moved into the lower brood box and she was laying eggs there, which is where I wanted her to be laying. So I was very pleased. I then put an empty super on the top this time so that if they wanted to build new comb, they would do it in the top box and everything would be fine. So while all of this drama is going on, I'm also keeping an eye on my other hives, obviously. So for hive number two, the one with Queen Marker, this was now a very small colony because any foragers from her original colony had gone back to the location they were familiar with. So they'd returned to hive number three. So her hive ended up consisting for a while of mainly eggs, brood and very young worker bees with any foragers being the ones that have basically aged out those young worker bees that were growing up and were old enough to leave. This is all completely normal and a good way to track the development is to just keep an eye on the entrance of the hive to monitor for activity because you're going to see that build up of foragers as the bees as you get older. So hive number three my queenless hive had been very busy. What I could see is that they'd knocked down the supersedure cells that I transferred from my from hive one, and they'd built two of their own. And I could tell the difference because the new cells were clearly younger, they hadn't been capped yet, and they weren't ready to be capped. So once again, I was a little worried about seeing just two of these supersedure cells. But I decided that I had no real choice, I had made a commitment, and I was going to leave them to it. One thing I did do on July 12th is I moved a frame of eggs and brood from one of my queen right hives into my queen less hive. And this was really to give them more options, you know, more eggs that they could pull queen cells from if they wanted to. And also because I was really paranoid about ending up with a laying worker. Now I mentioned in my introduction to beekeeping episode that when there is no brood pheromone and no queen pheromone, a worker bee might start to lay. Her reproductive system develops and she starts producing infertile eggs so they would only be drones and this is like a last ditch attempt for a colony like a laying worker colony cannot survive long term so it basically what they're doing is they're throwing a ton of sperm out in the world and hoping that some of it lands and then their genes survive through that so I was really really keen on making sure there was always brood pheromone in that hive to hopefully prevent a laying worker situation. Now, they had supersedure cells, so the chances of a laying worker was basically slim to numb. none, but I wasn't going to take that risk. I wanted to be super careful. On July 16th, 
I went into the hive again and I found a hatched queen cell, which was very exciting. It obviously very recently hatched. And the other queen cell had been completely broken down because a new queen, when she emerges, she will call to her pupating sister and her sister will respond. Hearing the response, the hatched queen goes to her and kills her while she's still in the cell because there can only be one queen. So somewhere in that hive was a beautiful virgin queen. For the next five to six days after she'd emerged, she would spend her time inside the hive, developing to a fully mature state. So like most insects, she has an outer layer of chitin that, or I think that's how you say it, <laughs> on her body, and that's gonna thicken and harden. And she'd also begin building up her flight muscles as well as developing her pheromones, which is what makes her attractive to drones. After she had done this, she would go off on a series of mating flights and she would fill her oviducts with sperm before moving it all into her spermatheca, which is the organ that holds all the sperm that she will ever need for the rest of her life. And it could take one to seven days of mating flights, but potentially even longer if you have heavy rains because she won't fly when it's raining. So once again, I had to be patient and just keep a close eye on this hive. So at this point, I'm going into this hive every like four days or so. The problem is patience isn't my strong suit. And I was very much like an anxious new mother worrying about my baby. Had my sweet little virgin queen died while on a mating flight? Had she mated poorly, come back and been killed by her own colony who sensed that she wasn't up to the job? I worried a lot. And actually, around July 23rd, I considered getting a new queen for this colony. And I even drove out to pick one up from one of my teachers. And before I actually purchased it, I said, you know, let, can I just run down with you my timeline? Because I think that I was rushing ahead and I assumed that things had gone wrong when they hadn't. So I took out my journal with all my information on it and we went through it and he basically told me I did have a queen in there and if I bought a new queen today there's going to be a queen fight and I might lose both of them. So once again he just said be patient you need to wait and I'm really glad because I could have done a really stupid thing there and this is why I always say having a teacher, having a mentor, going to bee clubs, knowing other beekeepers, it's so important because you can just talk to them, ask them questions, share what you have done and get feedback on it. And it can stop you from making terrible mistakes. On July 29th, I went into hive number three and I found a beautiful mated queen. They had done it. They had raised their very own queen from an egg. By August 1st, I had eggs. And at this point, I decided it was time to name her. So I named my new queen Morrigan, the Celtic goddess of renewal, war, and fate, because it just seemed fitting. Well, this hive is my largest hive. Um, it was the hive that the foragers returned to after the split, so it already had a larger population. And because I had been moving eggs and brood in there, 
they were raising new generations of bees while the queen was getting mated and the foragers were working really hard and just bringing in so much pollen and honey and whereas if I'd had a laying queen in there for that time period she would be filling all the cells with eggs because remember a queen can lay up to 2,000 eggs a day instead they had all these empty cells they could fill with pollen and honey so this is actually the only one of my three hives that I just, I'm not feeding yet. Um, hives number one and two have been offered a one-to-one -one ratio of sugar syrup since July 12th to help them build up comb and then to help them shore up their honey production. I felt this was especially important for hive number two queen markers colony because it was the smallest after the split and it needed that little extra bump. Meanwhile, hive number three has so much honey stored that the frames are getting incredibly heavy. It's absolutely wonderful. And if I was to harvest honey this year, it would definitely be from hive number three. But I'm not harvesting. I am letting all my girls keep their honey. And the reason for this is, um, there's a couple of reasons actually. So one is that I don't feel experienced enough to be confident in how much to take. There are guidelines about how much you want to leave bees to get through a winter and it's roughly, you know, you want one deep box of uh, brood, like one box of the brood and the stores and then you want like an equal amount of honey. But these are guidelines and as the weather changes and as unexpected things happen, you know, the bees might need more or less of the honey that they've stored. And I just don't feel confident enough to respond to any kind of emergency situation with the weather. And if you take too much honey, and this is something that a lot of new beekeepers inadvertently do, then your bees are going to starve when it gets cold. And no one wants that. And secondly, all of my colonies, even my biggest one, are still building new wax onto the frames. And that's a huge amount of work. It takes a lot of energy to produce wax. So I want them to be able to eat the honey that they have to produce wax and then have enough stored for the winter. I really feel like the cooler days are going to be here before we know it. And the girls, they're working so hard to get enough pollen and honey for this long Ohio winter. And I'm just going to let them do what comes naturally and hope that next year I'm going to re reap the rewards because theoretically next year I'm going to have all these frames built up with wax. They're not going to need to do that much wax production and instead they can get an earlier start of just bam, 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 filling those cells with honey. We shall see. So that is my hashtag bee drama. And since all that happened, things have mostly slowed down, although I do question my ability to really see things clearly. I often ask myself, am I missing something? Am I doing everything wrong? Is this all a disaster? <laughs> um, it's just, there's so much, there's so much to learn. There's so many things you can miss. It's so easy to get up in your head about it, but you just have to keep you know, making a plan before every inspection, going in, doing what you said you would do, learning what needs to come next and just trying your best. I did have a period of time as well where I grew very concerned about Queen Marker. Near the end of July, she stopped laying eggs for a period. 
And this can happen when it's very hot outside because the nectar production can slow or even stop. And queens will sometimes take a brood break during this time where they just stop laying until the flow starts again. But because the other two queens were still laying, I thought, well, that seems unlikely that the nectar flow has stopped. So my concern was that Marka might be failing. And I reasoned that she had come from the same place that Bridget had come from and Bridget was dead and she'd potentially failed and been replaced. So maybe that's what was going to happen with Queen Marka. Well, you can imagine my relief when she started laying again. It was slow at first, but I actually got into the hives this past Monday and it was wonderful to see just how much brood is in there now. She is laying like a champ. She is building up to make sure her colony has enough bees to get through winter. And I am absolutely delighted because this hive is the smallest. I need a little bit more bees in there to feel confident that they're going to survive. So I am thrilled to see that she's stepped up and I am still feeding her and I'm just hoping for the best. When I make notes after my inspections, I like to end every entry with a to-do list of things that need to be accomplished before or during my next inspection. And in that sort of vein, what's next for me and my hives? What's my overall to-do list? Well, I am keenly aware that I need to start planning for the cooler weather. I have never overwintered hives before and I need to start learning how that's done. So out come the books again and I'm going to be making a ton of notes and looking into all kinds of equipment and figuring out what my plan is. I also need to think a little sooner than that. I need to think about autumn. I have heard that consistent cool night temperatures is the time to consider a 2-1 sugar syrup for colonies that don't have enough honey stored yet. So that's something that I'm going to look into a little bit more and I might start feeding that soon. As always, you can expect an episode or two about whatever I learn. And uh, before I close out this episode, I would really like to thank my teachers. So usually what I would do at the end of every episode is I like to cite my sources, which is usually a book. But this was all about my practical experience and everything that I learned about working with bees in a practical sense came from my local teachers. So a huge thank you to Emily of Mueller Honeybees, Laura and Mike of Urban Honeybees, and Apiary Dave, the head apiarist at Stratford Ecological Centre. All three, well, all four of you, sorry, got me into this hobby. You've got me started. You are an invaluable resource and I very much value, I very much value your time and all of your advice. I'm going to post links to their respective websites on my blog. So if you are listening to this through a podcaster, some kind of podcast app or whatever, please go to the profile page find my blog link and check them out because they are wonderful. Um, I get, I actually get almost all of my local honey from Emily. It is delicious. She does a whipped and a creamed honey, which are my favorite types. They're amazing. Laura and Mike also produce a ton of different honeys and it's very, very good. And Apiary Dave is a wonderful teacher. Some people are born to teach and he is definitely one of them. So please, please, please check out their websites. 
For my next episode, I would like to discuss the Varroa destructor mite. Now, depending on how this goes, it might end up being two episodes because there is so much information to cover about this absolutely abominable little pest. One thing I really want to know is I kind of want to start a timeline. So everyone talks about beekeeping in terms of before Varroa and after, and I'd really like to narrow down when was the actual year that we started to see Varroa in the US and we started to see the terrible effects it was having on our bees. So there's a lot that I want to talk about. I want to give a vague timeline. I want to talk about the mite itself, its reproduction, how it works, how it affects a hive, what diseases can it introduce, what damage is it doing to your bees, and then of course treatment options. And there are a lot of different treatment options. And they're almost always changing because we have experienced some resistance to certain treatments that were more old school. And so people are trying new methods. And there's also preventative methods that you can do. Um, I don't believe that you can fully prevent getting Varroa mites in our current climate, but there are things that you can do that might help you get to a point where you don't need to treat. So there's just so much. And I really want to cover it and we're just going to have to see how that turns out so as always thank you thank you thank you for listening I really appreciate it I hope you're enjoying the podcast please get in touch with me if you'd like to leave a comment or if you have a question if there's something that you would like to see in the future if there's something you need me to change you can find me at homestead hens and honey on instagram at homestead hens on twitter And you can email me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com. So remember, as always, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Until next time. Bye-bye.